in songs, greeting cards, spiritual figures extol regularly the benefits of love. We're told many things about love, that it's indispensable foundation for healing and for positive change. I was just reading, the spur of tonight's talk was I was reading a wonderful conversation between the Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, who's kind of a hero. She wrote the book Radical Dharma, and Sharon Salzberg, who's a wonderful teacher in this tradition. And uh, in it, um, Angel Williams said, uh, one thing she said I thought was funny, I don't like a lot of people, but I love everyone. And then she also said, uh, spiritual practice is all about love and liberation. And obviously, I think we have an idea of what liberation means. It's a kind of uh, being able to shed the constraints of both our cultural programming, our family systems, uh, the society that we live in, to seize the means to find both peace and hopefully some form of uh, justice or uh, way of being in the world that is different from what uh, we're assigned. So, but love itself is rarely, if ever, defined. And I think that um, in all of these articles I've read where love is not defined, it's actually dimming the value of the teachings because when we simply extol love without defining it, we invite people to insert a meaning for what love means and or there's got to be a better way of saying that, insert their own meaning for what love implies. And for at least half of us that grew up in insecure childhoods, that means that we were probably uh, fill in a definition that's actually not beneficial or positive. We'll actually fill in a definition for what love is that actually could be uh, rather detrimental. If we grow up with an anxious, engulfing caretaker who's constantly preoccupied with others' uh, uh, emotional investment, then we might believe that's what love is, engulfing or anxiety. If we grow up with a parent who's aloof and simply expresses love through money and fixing problems but not through empathy, we might believe that's what love is. If we grow up in a family where relationships were codependent, where neither parent could flourish on their own, then we might believe that love is this uh, environment where, um, this invasive, boundaryless environment where nobody has space or permission to grow on their own. So I think it's really beneficial to define love. And while that might take the poetry out of it, if we have a sense of what love might imply, then it can tell us how to go about experiencing love. And I'll show you 
how I think that works. So I got to say up front that you might look at me and see these tattoos and think, well, this is somewhat of a pretty cool guy. You would be delusional, I assure you. But I'm actually going to go further with this talk and showing you exactly to what degree of a geek I really am. And I think you'll be astonished just how, how truly nerdy I am. So, if nothing else, this will confirm perhaps some people's suspicions that I'm not even one shred of cool. So, uh, moving on. If we want to define what love is, it's purported to inspire or conjure up in us. We know from the writers, the poets, the songwriters, the spiritual teachers that love is not an idea, it's an emotional state and you have to experience it to know what it is. So I, I can describe love, but I can't give you love by telling you what it is. I can simply describe it. We know that it's beneficial and that it's supposed to, and I believe it does, have efficacy. It changes us for the better. Uh, it's not limited to just parents and children or lovers, but friends can experience love, and even strangers through certain acts can experience love. And I would also add that when we feel love, it's secure, which means we don't have to be anxious about each other's investment. We don't have to constantly monitor our partners to make sure that they are as interested as we are or are maintaining their desire. So I'm going to define love and meet this criteria, I hope, and I'm going to explain why I define it this way. And if you're interested, the two books, and there's actually quite a lot of science I'm drawing from in psychology, but the two best books that can deepen your understanding of the psychology of love is one by Richard Thomas called A General Theory of Love with his friend Fari Amini, and then also Barbara Fredrickson, who wrote a book called Love 2.0. Also, I'm drawing on a lot of attachment psychology by Alan Shore and David Wallen, and also some biology by Stephen Porges. So here goes. And be ready to yawn and snore when you hear this definition. Love is a bonding behavior that produces emotion co-regulation. It's beneficial to our well-being. So what is emotion co-regulation? Emotion co-regulation, there's now a whole vast swath of psychology devoted to this, is when people through nonverbal, largely unconscious means regulate each other's states of arousal, and relaxation, not through language or ideas, but through everything that is nonverbal. So if one partner is overexcited, the other partner, by locking eyes, by touch, by the sound of their voice, can dampen the other person's fear or anxiety or anger. If one person is depressed, not engaged with the world, uh, feels uh, disengaged entirely, a sense of lack of motivation, then 
the partner can, again, largely through nonverbal means, arouse the person into an engaged relationship with life and motivate them and make them feel a greater degree of inspire, inspiration. We actually see this when people are in secure relationships. The amount of serotonin and dopamine gets regulated, but I'm going to talk about even deeper regions of the brain. When we are our experience love, we're actually engaging in this kind of co-regulation that actually involves some of the deepest, most core mammalian structures of the brain. And that's why it's not an idea. It has to be based on the expression, the vulnerable expression of emotions, and I'll tell you how it works. I have to tell you a little bit about what you experience when you're in love, or you experience love itself. One is oxytocin, which is a key neuropeptide in your brain. That means it's a larger molecule. Oxytocin is the love, as they call it, or bonding neurotransmitter in a sense. It calms us and it allows us to connect and drop the state of arousal. It takes us from a fight-or-flight state or a state of what some neuroscientists call withdrawal, where we're guarded, defensive, stressed out. When people are sprayed with oxytocin, they have nasal sprays that they do these tests with. I'd love to buy one. It sounds great. Uh, you wind up 44% more trusting of other people, so you might not want to take this when you're entering a card game or... Maybe not on the New York transit system. You should have seen the looks of the passengers today. The difference between negative emotions and positive emotions are actually pretty interesting. Negative emotions push us to a single behavior. So if you're frightened, it pushes you to run or get away. It pushes you to leave. When you are angry, it pushes you to confront injustice or set boundaries, not very much else, when it, or to fight, but limited behaviors. If you're disgusted, it urges you to expel. If you are sad, it impels you to grieve lost attachment figures in your life. But when we are in a negative emotion, essentially we are being pushed towards a very limited survival behavior. On the other hand, positive emotions, as we know from Barbara Fredrickson, broaden. Positive emotions are what allows us to have free will. When you're feeling happy, you're not pushed to either sing or dance or jump. Your choices are opened up, and how you proceed, you get to choose, because your dorsolateral part of your brain that allows you to becomes engaged in positive emotions. Whereas negative emotions are essential to survive and stay safe in our relationships and in our world, our positive emotions are what liberates us from being constrained to just act in response to stimuli, and it allows us to be creative and to express ourselves and to become more open to connect with other people. Mirror neurons are also 
been found to be switched on when people start to link up or become in sync. Yuri Hassan at Princeton, who used fMRI scans to observe the brains of people who are both lovers, friends, and strangers engaging in conversations. He found that when the conversations were enjoyed, a part of the parietal lobe that is completely immune to logic or reason lights up, and those are a mirror neurons where we start to feel what the other person is feeling. You start to feel what's called reciprocal empathy. If your partner is sad, you might start to feel a little sad. If somebody is really happy, you might start to feel that if you are in a loving, engaged interaction. In fact, that when two people are in reciprocal empathy, they can actually begin to predict what each other will say or do. When your mirror neurons start to fire and sync, then you become uncannily good at speaking at the same time without prime because you become more attuned unconsciously to the signals they're sending you. Now, all of this I'm talking about right now involve bypassing the logical language-based mind. The circuits of our brain that talk to these deeper regions of our right hemispheric, and I'll talk about what they do use in a moment. Finally, when we experience love, the vagal vagus nerve switches, and this is really important. Two nerve branches that connect our brainstem and the new vagal vagus nerve goes to the muscles in your face and allows you to communicate through facial expression. And that's the far more advanced vagal vagus nerve. But we have an older one that's cued to fight, flight, or freeze, where we literally go into a state of withdrawal, body tension, or literally start to play dead. And that uses the old vagal highway, which goes generally to the heart and stomach. So when we experience heartbreak, that's literally the old vagal nerve just tightening the muscles because we've been abandoned. When infants have been disconnected from their mother, they go instinctively into a fetal position and tighten the muscles of their chest because they feel vulnerable. And when people are in fear, what do they do? They stop digestion and, t and tighten the abdominal muscles to protect themselves is where many of us spend a lot of our days when we're stressed out, rushing around, trying to meet deadlines. But when we experience emotion co-regulation, when we look in the eyes of someone we care about, when we hear somebody's voice that we deeply experience some intimacy with, we start to switch from using the old vagal to the newer vagal vagus branch. So I've already explained that love is largely unconscious because it's much faster than thought and it's nonverbal. We don't realize it consciously, but all the time we are sending micro-expressions to each other that unconsciously we're picking up with the fast circuits of the brain. That's why when somebody is really unhappy, but they say, I'm fine, a part of you feels something's amiss or when somebody you work with claims to be in one mental state, like they say everything's going swell, but you can tell that the company's up shit's creek because they've sent you a micro-expression of fear. 
we don't generally see consciously these micro-expressions as John Gottman has shown, but couples in love are picking up those micro-expressions he's shown all the time. He showed that couples that send negative micro-expressions to each other of contempt or judgment invariably wind up breaking up very quickly. Whereas couples that send positive micro-expressions to each other stay together. This despite they might have completely different beliefs, but they are sinking emotionally to each other. And regulation that takes us from depressed to a normal state or a far more normal state or anxious and dampens us down to a far more healthy state of arousal. All of this is bypassing the rational, logical part. It has to be a vulnerable, open commitment to expressing the way you feel and opening to showing people rather than presenting a social mask. This is why things we do when we're dating, for people who are dating, as I recall, we're doing the exact opposite of love. We're trying to be funny, and nothing could be possibly further from love than that. So in many ways, to achieve love, we have to undo all the damage we do in dating. <laughs> all right, I thought that was funny. You guys were like... <laughs> um, all right, so how do we experience love? It's actually activated in four very predictable ways we know from the work of Alan Shore. One is attunement. And that simply means you lock eyes, or not assuming that people are sighted, but if you are sighted, you lock eyes, or you listen closely to the sound of each other's voice. And while you listen and lock eyes, you don't think about anything else. You don't think about what you have to get done tomorrow. You don't look at your iPhone. We don't have a story or something else. When, if we want to experience the benefits of love, we have to truly listen without in any way being partially there. To pick up the micro-expressions, to sink, and to experience that kind of empathetic resonance, we need to be fully present. It's a, it's a commitment of focusing attention. The second is that it's enhanced by proximity. Nothing undercuts love more than the feeling that the person you're with is trying to get away, is antsy, is not staying in a sa the same spatial relationship with you, is not committed to being there. Because if you feel that somebody is beginning to pull away, whether with their body, their head, their attention, then you'll change your emotions. And you'll start to become inauthentic. You'll start to become, you'll try to be more interesting or provocative or more angry because human beings desperately need attention. We're social beings. That's where all the personality disorders come from is the inordinate ways we are trained in childhood to try to get attention. So if somebody's threatening to pull away, not committed to you, then you will begin to become inauthentic. You will ramp up your emotional state, your arousal state, and that will do the opposite of love. 
That will take you out of love. Three is empathy, which implies mirroring. To have that synced in emotion co-regulation, we have to, to at least a little bit, be willing to open ourselves to the emotional state of the other. Even if we're sad and we don't really want to hear someone who also who's sad, or even if we're angry and we don't want to hear someone who's happy, we actually have to have that level of commitment where we open to and be willing to soften the body and feel in some small way what's being conveyed to us. Empathy cannot be manufactured. You either relax and take down your defenses and feel what another person is describing, or you don't. But it's very much the key to the experience and the benefits of love. Finally, the fourth quality we know from Fanaghi, Peter Fanaghi, a brilliant psychologist, is called marking. When a mother is with her child and the child is frightened, the mother will first go, oh, you're frightened, but then the mother will smile. And the smile has a purpose. It says, I know you're scared. I understand it. That's what the mirroring did. But then the smile says, we're okay. I'm not as frightened as you. I'm confident, and I can help you become and feel safe. So in marking, after we empathize with someone, we also express in some way that we can help them. I work in counseling, and also I've been to many therapists, and the last thing I would want would be to go into a therapist's office and go, oh, God, I'm feeling so anxious these days. I, I don't, you know, I, my heart is pounding. I'm really worried about, I don't know, the future or whatever. And I wouldn't want my therapist to go, besides, I know how that feels, but then go, you're right, we are fucked. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the most therapeutic environment that I could visualize. I would want somebody to go, yeah, that really sucks. I know how that feels. I mean, I, can, I, I just had that recently, but also I know ways that we can work with that. That's what you want to hear, I suspect. So again, we want to have, we want to have attunement, locking eyes, proximity, which means somebody who's staying put with us, uh, who's devoting time to us. We want to have uh, mirroring or empathy, and we want to have marking, which is somebody that after mirroring or empathizing also knows how to make us feel optimistic, or at least that together something can be accomplished. So finally, there's a few things if we agree with that this has something to do with love, what I've talked about. We know a lot of things about love now because science can talk and give us a lot of clues about what uh, love is capable of and what it's not. The first thing is love, we know, is not a preoccupation with another's level of interest. That is anxiety, and that is not healthy for you. So if love was defined for you as constantly worrying about whether someone is interested, that's not a secure relationship and you're not yet benefiting from the experience of love. Love is different from the concern for somebody else's health. 
that is concern, which can be beneficial to a relationship or is natural outgrowth for feeling love, but concern about somebody else's health or well-being actually is an arousal state and it can make you even more distressed and worried in your life. So it's not mutually beneficial. It's an inevitable part of a loving relationship, but it's not love itself. Love cannot be conveyed from one person to a multitude. So when you ever, if you ever hear somebody on stage saying, I love you, New York, they don't, in fact, really love you. <laughs> They're just saying something that's sentimental and sounds nice, but it's not love. So developmental and evolutionary psychology do show us that love is universal and it's natural. Because not, even, not only human beings, but other species such as gibbons and dolphins, etc., can experience the benefits of emotion co-regulation. They can co-regulate their states of arousal. So we are not alone in our capability to love. Probably the best reason to justify veganism I can imagine. Uh, it also enhances species chances of survival, because social species do better the more bonded they are. And the more we have benefits from linking and bonding to each other, such as it regulates our emotions in a positive way and makes us feel safe and allows us to relax, that encourages us to form societies, which is the way human species actually thrive. We don't run faster, we don't fly, we don't dig holes but we bond, and that's because of the capability to love. Finally, some of the benefits of love can be approximated in meditation. Barbara Fredrickson's work, which she reveals and talks about in her book Love 2.0, has shown that meta-meditation actually can create some of the beneficial effects of love. Now, I won't call it love in and of itself, but I will say we can get very close to the feeling of it. It actually can raise our oxytocin, switch the vagal vagus nerve, and it can actually activate states of greater ease. So that's what we're going to do right now. We're actually going to fall in something like love in our meditation. So thank you for listening. I hope there was something worthwhile in there. So... Letting go of everything you've heard. All that claptrap I just spewed out. So it's a good idea to... Uh, Try to align your head with your shoulders, with your hips. And all that means is if your head is tilted downwards or slouching in front of your chest, just tilt it a bit up as if you're looking at a very tall building. So we'll take three breaths together.
just to get ourselves more in sync. And also to relax key areas of the body. Areas of the body that are very much implicated in our state of ease and comfort. So take a nice deep in-breath through the nose and if you'd like, lift your shoulders up like you're trying to touch your ears. Just keep the shoulders up and then breathe out and drop the shoulders down. And if it feels right for your body, gently pull the shoulders back to open up your chest. That generally is beneficial. So for the next in-breath, pull in the belly really taut. Hold it in for an extra beat and then breathe out through the mouth. Soften the belly. And for the third in-breath, squinch the muscles of the face, make an ugly pinched face, tight, 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 and then breathe out through the mouth and spend some time relaxing the jaw, softening those micro-muscles around the eyes so that the eyes feel like two balls floating in warm, undisturbed water, two pools of water, allowing the eyes to settle, which means encouraging them not to look around or dart behind the eyelids. Taking a moment to uh, survey the body, and if there's anything you would like to relax, or dress, or adjust, so if you feel your legs might be in an unsustainable position, or clothes are too tight, just really be indulgent in finding the most comfortable position. And if at any time during the meditation you feel uncomfortable, don't feel that you have to stay in the exact same position but just, if you do have to move, do it in a way that's so quiet that your neighbor will not be in any way disturbed or distracted. So set an intention. I like to use the following. One, to not try to attain any state, but rather just be open and accepting of whatever I'm experiencing. The practice is not about so much achieving by force or by effort anything. It's actually in practicing acceptance with the way we feel, the way the body sensations are, accepting the emotional state that we're in, the more we practice acceptance over time, the less
uncomfortable, stressed, despairing we are in life. So paradoxically, well-being is achieved by not trying to achieve anything. Just trying to be with the way you feel. There's no wrong place to start a meditation. So we're not trying to achieve any state. Another intention that's worth setting is when you do find your mind wandering away to refrain from any self-judgment or criticism or frustration. Each time you awake from a thought that's pulled you away from presence, it's a form of awakening. It's not that dissimilar from the Buddha's liberation where he stepped out of the delusion that money and wealth and fame and controlling other people, and ongoing sensual pleasure through drugs or alcohol or any other means was the key to peace of mind. Stepping out of a thought is like stepping out of delusion. So it's worth celebrating So we're going to spend the next 10 minutes or so in silence. And I'd encourage you to start your meditation with a practice where you keep the mind focused on a single ongoing sensation. That could be the feeling of your body breathing. If you do work with the breath, I personally recommend rather than the chest or the tip of the nose feeling the breath expanding slightly the belly and then contracting it and try to experience the in-breath not as being pulled in but just allowed in a gradual softening belly that's allowing in the air and then the contraction of the muscles associated with releasing rather than pushing out the air. If it's difficult for you to stay with the breath, employ a counting strategy such as think one on the in-breath, two on the out, think three on the in-breath, four on the out, and when you get to five, start counting back down. 
four on the out, three on the in, and so forth. You can count to a higher number, seven, nine, eleven. If you don't like working with the breath, no worries. Just listen to the sounds flooding into the room from the street and also feel the sensations of contact, the ground, your clothing, feeling any strong sensations occurring in the body. Sounds have a wonderful way of opening the mind and making it feel more spacious. So I'm going to leave you here in silence for a while. And then when we return, we'll go into the meta practice.
So at this point, feel invited to let go of the breath or the sounds. They can be there, but just not held in the front of attention. And I'd like you, or invite you to bring to mind the image of someone you have a feeling of intimacy or care or love, someone who you have a beneficial or positive or caring relationship. This individual preferably would be alive, but if the first image that comes to mind is of someone who has passed, that's okay. It's important to try to visualize them in as much detail that you can manage. Focusing on being as accurate with your imagination of the looks of their eyes and see if you can create the image of this friend this mentor, this lover, this family member, whoever it may be, just have them be looking at you with a accepting deep gaze. If you like, sometimes I do this practice with a hand to my heart, but it's not in any way essential. Just visualize someone, a being, it could be, it could be, of course, someone who's not human, a being that is in animal form. Visualizing them looking at you. And then in your mind, if you'd like, whisper, thank you. And then, with as much meaning as you can attach to the metaphrases, may you be peaceful. May you feel safe. May you feel loved. May you feel my love. May you be peaceful. May you feel safe. May you live with ease. May you feel loved. May you know you are loved. And see if you can open to any feelings that the sentiments associated with these words might inspire. 
And then bringing to mind another being, human or animal, alive or dead, visualize them looking at you with kindness and accepting kind expression. And again, if you feel it's appropriate, just whisper thank you. And then, may you feel peaceful. May you feel safe. May you live with ease. May you feel loved. And finally, letting go of their image. And for the third image, bring to mind yourself any time in your life when you needed love, you needed care, you needed secure, accepting attention. And just visualize yourself looking at you now and see if you can offer that vulnerable part of yourself that's still very much present in us love and acceptance. May you feel peace. May you live with ease. May you feel safe. May you feel loved. May you feel peaceful. May you feel safe. May you live with ease. May you feel loved. Letting go of your image. And take a moment to reflect that while we've done this practice, we haven't harmed any other beings. We haven't engaged in conflict. We haven't exploited anyone. At this time, all we've done is tried to cultivate acceptance and kindness. And there are many, many benefits to meditation, both for health and psychological well-being, and all those benefits are accrued at no cost to the environment, at no cost to any other life. So your practice is blameless. Finally, when it's time to open your eyes, and that's approaching, take a moment to look 
at the ground in front of you when you open your eyes and integrate sight and color into your awareness in such a way that you don't abandon the body. If we look around the room too quickly, see all the people and objects, the rush of stimuli will push away body awareness. And then we'll be back in that guarded, defensive, vulnerable state that we may have been in earlier today. So whenever you're ready, feel invited to open your eyes.